Chapter Eleven of the Ashell Mysteries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan. The Ashell Mysteries by Mrs. Charles Bryce. Chapter Eleven. Gimblet left the gunroom quietly and after some more exploring discovered the way to the back premises in the pantry he found blanston whom he invited to follow him to the deserted billiard room for a few minutes conversation you know he told him mrs byrne and your new young master want me to examine the evidence that sir david southern is the author of this terrible crime i'm sure i wish sir said the man that you could prove he never did it a very nice young man, sir. Sir David has always been. It seems dreadful to think of him lifting his hand against his uncle. I'm sure it ought to be a warning to all of us to keep our tempers. But, of course, it was very hard on Sir David to have his dog shot before his very eyes. No doubt, agreed Gimblet. You were there when it happened, I suppose. No, sir, but I heard about it from one of the keepers, and Sir David was very, very much put out about it. So he says, and I quite believe it, seeing how fond he was of that poor creature. Always had it to sleep in his room, he did. Sir, uh, though it was rather an offensive animal to the nose, to my way of thinking, but these young gentlemen, what are always smoking cigarettes, get to lose their sense of smell. I've often noticed that, sir. I understand he was very angry indeed, sir but i should hardly have thought he would go so far as to take his uncle's life knowing him as i have done from a child i may say i should not have hardly thought of it of him sir mm, life is full of surprises said gimlet and you never know for certain what any one may do or may not do tell me you were the first on the scene of the crime weren't you oh hardly that sir Miss Byrne was with his lordship at the time. Yes, yes, of course. But you saw him shortly after the shot was fired. Did you hear the shot? Oh, no, no, sir. The hall is quite away from the tower, and so is the housekeeper's room. And the walls are very thick. We were just finishing supper, which was very late that night on account of the gentleman coming in late from stalking, and one thing and another— i'm rather surprised none of us heard it sir i dare say there was a good deal of noise going on said gimblet how many of you are there in the servants quarters well counting the chauffeur and the hall boy replied blanston and including the visitors maids who are gone now we were sixteen servants in the house that night and i'm afraid there may have been a rather a noise going on were you all there asked gimblet had no one left since the beginning of supper? Oh, no one had gone out of the room or the hall since supper commenced, Blanston assured him. We were all very glad, as it prevented any of us from being suspect, sir. Though in point of fact, I was saying only last night, when the second footman dropped the pudding, just as he was bringing it into the room, that we could really have spared him better than what we could, Sir David, sir. But, of course, it's natural for the household to be feeling a bit jumpy till after the funeral tomorrow. Oh, when that's over, I shan't 
listen to no more excuses.' "'Quite so,' said Gimlet. "'What was the first inkling you got that there was anything wrong?' Oh, "'About half-past ten. The billiard-room bell rang very loud in the passage outside the hall. Before it had stopped, and while I was calling to George, the first footman, to hurry up and answer it, there came another peal, and then another, and another. I thought something must be wrong, so I ran out of the room and upstairs with the others. When we got to the billiard-room, there was Miss Byrne fainting on a chair, and Mr. McConachan beside her, looking very upset. "'There's been an accident or worse,' he says. "'To his lordship. Come on, Blanston, and let's see what it is. And you and others look after Miss Byrne. Fetch her maid. Fetch Lady Ruth.' And with that, he makes for the library door at a run, with me following close though I was a bit puffed with coming upstairs so fast. Just as we came into the library door, he turns and says to me, with his hand on the knob, From what Miss Burns says, Blanston, I'm afraid it's murder. And before I could more than grasp, he had the door open, and we were in the room. There was his poor lordship, lying forward on the table, his head on the blotter-book, and one arm hanging down beside him. Quite dead he was, sir, and his blood all over the floor. Poor gentleman. We left him as we found him and went back. Mr. Conigan locked the door and put the key in his pocket. No one must go in there until the police come, he said. But in the meantime, we must get what men we can together and see if the brute who did this isn't still lurking about the grounds. It would be something if we can catch him and avenge my poor uncle, he said. Gimlet considered for a moment. "'Are you sure you remember the position you found the body in?' he asked. "'Oh, yes, sir,' replied Blanston, in some surprise. "'It was like I told you. His head on the blotter-book, and one arm with it. He must have fallen straight forward onto the table.' "'Oh, thank you,' said Gimlet. "'One more question. I heard you witness a will for Lord Ashel a day or two before he died.' "'Yes, sir.' I did, and Mrs. Parsons, the housekeeper. How did you know it was a will? We didn't exactly know it, sir. But afterwards, when it came out his lordship had told Miss Byrne he had made one, we thought it must have been that. Oh, I see, said Gimlet. Thank you. That's all I want to know. Gimlet sent for the other servants and interrogated them one by one, but without adding anything fresh to what he had already learned. He went thoughtfully away and sought out Mark in the smoking-room, where he found him surrounded by packets of papers which lay in heaps upon the floor and tables. "'There's a frightful lot to look through,' said the young man despondently, looking up from his self-imposed task. "'I haven't found anything interesting yet. How did you get on? Do you think those footmarks can possibly be anyone's but David's? The boot you gave me fits them too well to admit of doubt.' "'I'm afraid,' said Gimblet. "'And as the other made a half-gesture of despair, "'you must give me more time,' he said. "'I may find some clue in the course of the next two or three days. "'By the by, is your cousin a short man?' "'No,' said Mark. "'He's about my height. "'Why do you ask?' "'Oh, I had an idea,' said Gimblet evasively. "'But if he's as tall as you, I had better begin again.' 
I think I'll take a little stroll through the grounds, he added, and then back to Lady Worsfold's house and get a bath and a change. I shall see you at dinner-time, said Ashel. I'm dining at the cottage. Au revoir till then. Gimlet went out of the front door and proceeded to make a tour of the castle buildings. Turning to his left, round the front of the house, he passed the gun-room door and went down a short path which led to the level of the servants' quarters. These were built on the slope of the hill, so that what was a basement in the front of the house was level with the ground at the back. Here more remains of the old fortress were to be seen. The various outbuildings that straggled down towards the lock had all once formed part of the old blockhouses or outlying towers, and as the path descended further down the hill, the detective found himself walking round the precipitous rock from which the single great tower, still standing, the one in whose massive shell the room had been cut, which was now the library, dominated the scene from every side. It had been built at the very edge of the hill, which here fell almost sheer to the level of the lake. The old McConaughans had, no doubt, chosen their site for its unscalable position. Indeed, the place must always have been impregnable from that side. The rock offerings no foothold to a goat till within twenty feet of the base of the tower, where the surface was broken and uneven, and had, in places, been built up with solid masonry. In the crevices up there, Seeds had germinated and grown to tall plants and bushes. Ivy hung about the face of the escarpment like a scarf, and in one place a good-sized tree, a beech, had established itself firmly upon a ledge and leant forward over the path, below in a manner that turned the beholder giddy. Its great roots had not been able to grow to their full girth within the cracks and crannies of the rocks. Some of them had been pushed their way in through the gaps in the masonry, and others curled and twisted in mid-air, twining and interlacing in an outspread canopy. Beyond the tower ran the battlement wall of the enclosed garden, its foundations draped in the thrifty vegetation of the rocks. At Kimla's feet, on the other side of the path, brawled a burn, hurrying on its way to the lock, and he followed its course slowly down the place where it mingled with the deep waters. A little beyond he saw the point of a fir-covered peninsula, and wandered under the trees until he came to the end of it. There he sat down to think over what he had heard and seen that afternoon. The wild beauty of the place soothed and delighted him. He felt lazily in his pocket for a chocolate. Below him, Gray lichen-grown rocks jutted into the lock in a tumble. Broken masses piled heedlessly one on the other, as if some troll of the mountain had begun to play to make a causeway for himself. The great stones, so old, so fiercely strong, stood knee-deep in the waters, over which they seemed to brood with so patient and indifferent a diligence that human life and affairs took on an aspect very small and inconsiderable. They were like monstrous philosophers, he thought, oblivious alike to time and to the cold wave that lapped their feet. 
their heads crowned here and there with pines as with scattered locks, the little tufts of heather and ferns and grasses that clung to them wherever root-hole could be found, all the clothing they wore against the bitter blasts of the wind. While he sat there, a breeze got up and ruffled the lock. The ripples danced and sparkled like a cinema photographer, and waves threw themselves among the rocks with loud gurglings and splashings. The air was suddenly full of the noise and hurry of the waters. He got up and went to the end of the peninsula. In spite of the dancing light upon the surface and the merry sounds of the ripples, the water, he could see, was deep and dark. A little way out, a pale, smooth stone rose a few feet above the level of it, its top draped in a velvet green shawl of moss. A fat seagull sat there, nor did it move when he appeared. A little bay ran in between the rocks. Its shore spread with gray sand, smooth and trackless, at least so Gimlet imagined it at first. As his eyes roamed casually over the beach, then suddenly, with a smothered ejaculation, he leaped down from his perch of observation and made his way to the margin of the water. There, scored in the sand, was a deep furrow, reaching to within a foot of the waves where it stopped, as if it had been wiped out from a slate with a damp sponge. Gimlet had no doubt what it was. A boat had been beached here, and quite lately. A glance at the stone surrounding the bay showed him that the water was falling, for in quiet little pools, within the outer breakwater of rocks, a damp line showed on the granite a full quarter of an inch above the water. By a rapid calculation of time it would take for that watermark to dry, the detective was able to form some idea of the rate at which the lock was falling. He had thought he could judge the slope of the beach sufficiently well to calculate about how long it was since the track in the sand had reached to the brink of the water. It was a rough guess, but if he were right, then a boat had landed in the bay some forty-two hours ago. But there were other traces besides, the tracks of him who had brought the boat ashore from where Gimlet stood, a double row of footprints going and returning, showed plainly between the water and the stones to which the sand quickly gave place. They were the tracks left by large boots with singularly pointed toes and with no nails on the soles, emphatically not boots such as any of the men in these parts would be likely to wear. Gimlet bent over the sand. When he rose once more and stood erect upon the beach, he saw under the shadow of the pines the figure of a tall, thin man with a lean face and scraggly reddish mustache, who was watching him with an eye plainly suspicious. He was dressed in knickerbockers and a coat of rough tweed of a large checkered pattern, and carried a spyglass slung over his back. The detective went to him at once. "'Are you employed on the Inverashal estate?' he asked civilly. "'I'm Duncan McGregor, his lordship's head-keeper,' was the reply, given in the cold tones of one accosted by an intruder. Gimlet hastened to introduce himself and to explain his presence, and McGregor, 
condescended to thaw. "'I should be very much obliged,' said Gimblet, "'if you would take a look at the sands where you saw me standing. "'I like to know your opinion on some marks that are there.' The keeper strode down to the beach. "'A boat will have been here,' he pronounced after a rapid scrutiny. "'Lately?' asked Gimblet. He saw the man's eyes go, as he had done, to the watermarks on the rocks. "'Not so very long ago,' he said. "'I'm thinking it had been the night before. "'That's when she came in.' "'Ah,' said Gimlet, "'I'm glad you agreed with me. "'That's what I thought myself. "'Do boats often come ashore on this beach?' "'McGregor considered. "'Well, it's the first time I've ever heard of anybody doing the like,' he said at last. "'The landing stage is at the other side of the point.' "'It's there they land. "'There's not a man in this glen who would come in here, "'unless it were for some special reason. "'It's not a very grand place to bring a boat, "'and the rocks are narrow at the mouth.' "'Well, do strangers often come here?' said Gimlet. "'Oh, there are no strangers to Inverashal,' said the keeper. "'The high road runs at the other side of Loch through Syrian, "'and the tramps and motors go over it, but... "'but never had I known of that kind on our shore.' "'Gimlet observed with some amusement "'that the man spoke of motors and tramps "'as a variety of the same breed. "'But all he said was, "'Could you make inquiries as to whether anyone on the estate "'happens to have brought a boat in here during the last week? "'I should be glad if you could do something "'without mentioning my name "'or letting anyone think it's important.' "'Gimlet felt he could trust the discretion "'of this taciturn highland. "'All that, sir,' was the reply. "'And Gimblet could see, in spite of the man's unchanging countenance, "'that he was pleased at this mark of confidence in him. "'By the way, could you take me to the head gardener's house?' he asked, "'abruptly changing the subject. "'I should rather like to talk with him.' "'So MacGregor conducted him down the road to the lodge. "'It's in here where Angus Malcolm lives,' he remarked laconically. "'Good evening, sir.' Then he turned and strode away over the hillside, and Gimblet knocked at the door. It was opened by the gardener, and he had a glimpse through the open doorway of a family at tea. "'Oh, I'm sorry to disturb you,' he said. "'I will look in again another day. "'Lord Ashell referred me to you for the name of a rose I asked about, but it will do tomorrow.' The gardener then assured him that his tea could wait, but Gimlet would not detain him. "'I shall no doubt see you up in the garden tomorrow,' he said. "'The roses in that long bed outside the library are very fine, and I am interested in their culture. I wonder if they do so well in this peaty soil.' "'Ah, oh, man, they get on splendid here,' said Malcolm, who, of course, liked nothing better than to talk about his flowers.' but being a highlander resented any suggestion that his native earth was not the best possible for no matter what purpose we just give them a good dressing down with manure by the way do you use any uh, patented fertilizer gimblet asked oh just a wee bit of slag now and then said the gardener and i just give em some lime when i think the ground needs it well said Gimlet. The results are very good. By the way, have you been working on that bed lately? I uh, picked this up among the violas, 
Did you happen to drop it? He took from his pocket a small notebook and held it out interrogatively. No, I didn't drop it, answered the gardener. It might have been someone from the castle. I haven't been near that rose bed for four or five days, and it couldn't have been lying there before the rain. Indeed, the little book showed no trace of damp on its green cover. I asked in the castle, but no one claimed it, said Gimlet. Perhaps it belongs to one of your men. Oh, there's nobody been working there this week, so it doesn't belong to none of the gardeners. If it's there, you found it, repeated Malcolm. There's been no work been on that bed for the last fortnight or more. I was thinking of sending a loon over there with a hoe in a day or two. You see, with the murder, it's been impossible to get our work done. Apart from that, we've been busy with the fruit and other things. I didn't notice any weeds, said Gimlet, but I won't keep you any longer. Now, perhaps tomorrow afternoon I may see you in the garden, and if so, I shall get you to tell me the name of that rose. End of chapter 11 Recording by Kenneth Sergeant Gagan